1 Peter chapter 3. Sometimes people read ahead and know what's coming, and maybe you have, um, but maybe you're arriving at this passage of Scripture right now and you're seeing the first words, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And, you know, I've been, I've been in vocational ministry for 35 years. I've been preaching week in, week out for 25 of those years as a lead pastor. And every time I've come to a passage like this from the New Testament, I've, I've tried to minimize tension in some way. I've tried to use humor, you know, ladies, you're going to love this, you know, that kind of junk. And here's, here's what I have unintentionally done, I think, as I've reflected on this as I've gotten older. I think I've unintentionally minimized uh, the real fear that some women have when you come to a passage like this because you know how this particular kind of teaching has been used by your husband in your marriage and it's not been good and preachers have enabled them let's just be honest I mean there are preachers who preach this from the perspective of men who have deep-seated insecurities who have deep control issues have an extraordinarily low view of women and they have taught what they want to be true what culturally fits them to be true they have not taught what is true and for that I am deeply sorry I'm deeply sorry for what my tribe has done uh, to inflict that kind of damage but but I also want to say this being sorry for what men who should know better have done with God's Word is not the same thing as being sorry for what God's Word says. One of the bedrock convictions that I have is that God's Word is given to us to flourish in every aspect of life. And so what I will teach to you today from 1 Peter chapter 3 is rooted in the idea that I think this is exactly what God's Word says and that if properly applied and understood, it will cause all of our marriages, those of us who are married, to flourish and be what God wants them to be. So here's what I'm going to do today. I think it's important first that we understand the context. So, so I'm going to preach, I'm going to walk us through these seven verses in context, we're just gonna we're gonna let it land in the world situation that Peter was preaching to, and then I'm going to ask of these verses the million dollar question. Million dollar question being, does what we are being told here apply to us today? And then I'm going to give you five takeaways. So if nothing else, I've just given you a way to chart the time till lunch. Okay, all right going to walk through it in context. We're going to ask the million-dollar question, does this apply today? And then we're going to do the takeaway. So I hope you have found 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, again, in context, let's pull back, get to 30,000 feet here. One of the things that you may not have noticed is that when Peter has come to the ethical instruction in his book, and bear in mind, Books like 1 Peter start with doctrinal instruction, and then they move to ethical instruction. Here's what you should think and believe about God, Jesus, the gospel. Here's how that should impact your life. So when Peter has gotten to his ethical instruction in uh, 1 Peter chapter 
2, earlier on, he, he, he begins to speak to three disenfranchised peoples. Citizens, slaves, wives. People who already were largely voiceless in their world, whose faith in Jesus had made them even more voiceless. Citizens in the Roman world basically had very little say or determination in their own life. Christianity gave them less of what they had already. Slaves had very little say, determination in their life in the first century. Christianity gave them less. Wives had very little say in their lives. Christianity gave them less. But what they are each one told to do is submit. Now, first things first, in the world in which these people lived, the option of submitting was not given. But Peter is speaking to them from the perspective of people who do have the option to submit. You are not citizens of this world. You are citizens of the kingdom of God. And so you don't have to submit to a worldly government. Slaves, you don't have to submit to a worldly master. Wives, you don't have to submit to your husbands. But, but in each and every case, they are told to voluntarily as people who have ultimately trust in Jesus and not in those three institutions, government, slave ownership, and marriage. People who ultimately find their trust in Jesus. And the reason that they are told every single one of these various disenfranchised groups to do this is to, is to create a safe haven for the gospel to flourish. Peter is not interested in launching a social revolution in 1 Peter's chapter 2 and 3. What he's interested in is people in their world being able to practice their faith without any unwanted or unwarranted persecution in the hopes, here's the missional aspect of it, that as they have that space to practice their faith, the gospel will flourish in their orbit. He's not interested in undoing everything. He's in wartime footing. He's in a real-time battle in a, an incredible minority situation for Christians where he's trying to say to his church members, here's how you can gain space to practice your faith and to advance your faith. So be the best citizen that you can be so that no one thinks you to be anarchists who are trying to overthrow the government. Be the best slave that you can be so that your master doesn't think that Christianity is all about a slave revolt. And be the very best wife that you can be lest your husband think that, you, uh, that this Christian faith is all about upsetting the social order. Because here's the thing. In the first century... The man determined the faith of the family. And so if the father, the husband, said, this household will worship Jupiter, and the wife found faith in Jesus Christ and came to him and said, I can no longer worship Jupiter, I have to worship as God, Jesus of Nazareth, she was at the complete mercy of her husband. And so she is, being, she is being told here by Peter, be the very best wife you can be. Do what the world expects you to do, to submit to your husband so that he will see that your faith is not a threat to the household. And maybe he will give you 
the opportunity to continue to practice your faith and then maybe this so that even if some do not obey the word they may be one without a word by your conduct in other words if some of you have unbelieving husbands and they continue in their unbelief maybe by seeing you practice your faith authentically without a desire to overthrow uh, the the institution of marriage as it existed in the first century they will think maybe there's something to what my wife says and they will all turn from Jupiter or whoever to follow Jesus. So there is a missional aspect to all of this, hoping that as they practice their faith, they will see their respectful and pure conduct and maybe give themselves over to Jesus. So that's kind of what's going on as Peter speaks to these women. And then he goes on to say this, do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear but let the adorning your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious now again he's instructing women exactly like first century Roman wives were instructed first century Roman wives were not to dress lavishly or provocatively because it was seen to be an embarrassment to their husband. So he's doing exactly what first century women would be accustomed to hearing, except once again with a twist. He's saying that you should adorn yourself in the hidden person, cultivate a gentle and loving spirit with God because that is precious in his sight. They are not to be doing what they are doing as a husband-centered thing, adorning themselves chastely. They are to do it as a God-centered thing so that they are cultivating themselves in a way that pleases him. So this is not a prohibition against nice clothes and jewelry for anybody. We're not going to uh, make everybody come and and throw their rings and jewelry and everything at the, at the front of the auditorium because that's that's not what this is meant to do. He's just simply saying to women, but really by extension to all of us, what should matter is here and this is what we should work on. So again, in context in the first century, these women who had no say are being told to continue to submit to their husbands as culture dictated in the hopes that they could gain free space to live out their faith and by extension advance the faith to the household and they could continue to do that if they cultivated their personal walk with Jesus and then he continues on and says for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now again, remember where we are and understand the absolute final say that husbands had in the home as to which God would be worshipped. Peter is acknowledging that for these women to continue to hold fast to their faith in Jesus, that was the line that couldn't be crossed. He was not saying to them, submit even if they tell you to abandon your faith. 
He's saying as you continue to hold fast to your faith, as you continue to be obedient to the Lord, it may place some of you in very real jeopardy. And that jeopardy could cause you to shrink back from final allegiance to God. Because a husband could say to a wife, if you don't continue to worship Jupiter or whoever, it's not that they would murder them or kill them, but they could cast them out of the house and divorce them. And a woman in the first century, without a home for her identity and without a husband for her income, would at best have to resort to begging. And it may result in something far, far worse. And so he says, Sarah for example, had a husband who was a jack wagon. I mean, let's all just try to remember Abraham, Father Abraham who had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Let's remember that guy. Not once, but twice. He passed off his wife Sarah as his sister because he was afraid that if they found out she was his wife, they would kill him and take her because of her great beauty. Father, husband of the year right there. But Sarah, no voice, no say in any of those decisions, put her trust in God and followed her husband into what was ultimately a sinful action and didn't fear what would happen to her. He's using that as an example, saying, do not shrink back from standing firm in your faith. And trust in God like Sarah did. So, first century, women, difficult situation, no voice, continue to do what society expects, submit. Do it, though, in this way so that you can gain opportunity to practice your faith and maybe even advance the gospel. And do not fear ultimately holding fast to your relationship to Jesus because God is going to watch you and take care of you. Ultimately, what would happen in that kind of situation is that the church would come around those women so that those women would be able to continue to exist and not have to resort to begging or something worse. So, he's talked to three disenfranchised peoples, but he, he has not, for instance, when he talked to slaves, talked to Christian masters. He's not talked to them about how they should act um, in, in their respective role. But he does husbands here. He does husbands. So he says to first century husbands, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. So here he's speaking to Christian husbands. And he is saying, I want you to understand the role of obedience that your wife is called to by God. And I want you to understand the vulnerable situation in that, that places them within. Live with them in an understanding way. And then he says, live with them in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. Now, some preachers, let's call them idiots, will, will say that this is teaching inherent male superiority, that men are somehow emotionally, spiritually superior to women and bless their little hearts. If men weren't around, they'd just wander into traffic all the time. That is not what that's saying. It is simply acknowledging what is generally true. Men generally, not all of you, but some of you, 
most of you, are inherently physically stronger than your wife. And you could force your will on her about anything. So he says, live with them in an understanding way, understanding who God has called them to be, what God has called them to do, the vulnerable situation in which they place themselves, and do not force your will or yourself on them in any way at all. And then he says this, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, what gets all of the attention in the 21st century when you read verses 1 through 7 are the first words, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. But what got all of the attention in the first century when these words were read is that last phrase, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. He is saying what? He's saying women have full equality before God with men. There is no inherent superiority or inferiority. We are all one in God. And this is not isolated in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It is all the way through the New Testament. That what ultimately puts us on an, evil pla- uh, on an equal plane is not our maleness or our femaleness, our ethnicity, or our vocation in life. What ultimately puts us equals before God is Jesus himself. Every human being is inherently equal before God. And then he says, you'd better do this, husbands, Because if you don't, your prayers may be hindered. In other words, if you don't live this way, Christian husbands, with your wife, in an understanding way, not in an autocratic, forceful way, not understanding that that they are heirs with you in the kingdom of God, that they are daughters of, of God, then it's going to destroy your relationship with God. So that's the first century, all right? Speaking to first century women, continue to do what the world expects you to do. Submit to your husband, but do it in a special way that gains ultimate space and freedom to practice your faith and maybe advance your faith and trust God every step of the way. Husbands, I know you've heard it said that you're all that in a bag of chips, but you are to serve your wife, not be autocratic with your wife, understanding the inherent equality of your wife, lest your faith be hindered. That's the first century. And so the million-dollar question is this, does any of this apply today? And, man, we're fresh out of time. So, uh, (laughs) look, I'd be arrogant to say that I can definitively give you an answer in a short period of time. I, I believe what I'm about to say. I believe it to the core of my being. I believe it's consistent in Scripture. But there have been libraries of books written on this very question. Libraries of books written on this very question. Um, and so me spending a few minutes at the end of the sermon, probably not going to clear up every question you might have about it. But I do believe that what we read here from verses 1 through 7 is normative, meaning that it's transcultural and that it is, is transcontextual. I do believe that God has designed the institution of marriage to run in this way. And 
because I don't have enough time, all I can do is point to another passage of Scripture, which is really the touchstone passage of Scripture on this particular subject. It's Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul does the same thing Peter is doing, although he flips it. In, verse, uh, in, in, in 1 Peter 3, Peter devotes one verse to the men, the rest of the verses to women. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul devotes one verse to the women, the rest of the verses to men. But it's talking about the same thing. So he's waxing eloquent about the institution of marriage. And then in verse 32 of Ephesians chapter 5, he said, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It meaning what? It meaning the, the institution of marriage. He's not saying that the Christian understanding of marriage is a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying the institution of marriage, as it is established and built by God in the garden, Genesis chapter 2, was designed to give an illustration of the gospel of Christ's love for the church. And because it is embedded in the institution of marriage, this idea of how a marriage is supposed to work with, with a man leading and, and a woman following in this way as it's described is, I believe, and our church believes, something that is true of all ages. In fact, I, I believe that as part of God's common grace, a blessing that he bestows to everyone, marriages that flourish even if they're non-Christian marriages, find their way here and are working this out like what we have talked about, even if they don't know it or even acknowledge that it does. All right, so we've talked about the first century. We've taught that I believe and the leadership of our church believes that this is a reflection of how the home uh, should operate, how God has designed the home to operate. Now let's do our five takeaways. And so we're rounding the bend uh, jalapenos is in your very near future. Here we go. Number one, submission is a part of God's good design. And probably that should be worded differently. Submission and leadership in the home is a part of God's good design. It does not mean that husbands can be autocratic. It does not mean that they can just simply say, this is the way that it will be, that they can rule by fiat and by edict. Julie and I have been married 31 years. I think our marriage reflects what we see in Ephesians 5 and in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And it's not because my wife's some shy little retiring thing. My wife is an elementary school principal in the inner city. It is up for grabs whether or not I am physically stronger than she is. And we operate as a team within these parameters. So if there is a disagreement between the two of us, if it's not going to put our family in jeopardy, if it is not going to divide irretrievably or even temporarily us, it's just a matter of disagreement. She will trust my judgment. And as someone who doesn't lead autocratically, I'm going to pump the brakes if she's not on board. I mean, I just, I just am. I mean, this past spring, interest rates are down. I said, honey, I, I, think, I think we ought to refinance our home. She has no opinion. She says, go for it. So I run the race. She shows up and signs a paper. 
But if I were to go and say, hon, you know, we're retiring and, you know, the next decade or so, uh, I'm going to put all our retirement in Bitcoin. And she'd go, ah, maybe I need to pump the brakes there. Submission, leadership, part of God's good design for a home to function. Next, a wife's worth is found in Christ. These women are being told plainly that what gives you value isn't your marriage or your husband. And if you pay the ultimate price for your faith and get kicked out of your home and suddenly you become personless in the society, you're still valuable in the eyes of God. You're a daughter of the king. You are a co-heir, a joint heir in Jesus with everyone around you. A wife's worth is found in Christ. Number three, husbands must honor their wives. Again, I've been in church work my entire adult life. And here's what I have found to be true almost every single time. Is that the man who is loudest about a woman's submission and it being the pet peeve and the number one doctrine they talk about, the man who is loudest is generally weak, insecure, and manipulative. Almost 100% of the time. We've had people who have spoken from this very place who communicated that kind of same insecurity on this particular subject. They'll never be invited back to preach here again, will they, Kevin? Yeah, I'm pointing at Kevin. He knows who I'm talking about. Now everybody's going to say, when was the last time we had a guest speaker? Never mind. <laughs> but these men might have the general trajectory of a husband's leadership right. They're not honoring their wives. And it's wrong. It's sinful. Next, women are not inferior at all in any way. They are not inferior. They have equal standing with God. This is exactly what this text has just shown us. They have equal standing with God. But one of the things that is undergirding the text, that is implied by the text, that is in context with the rest of the New Testament, is that this equal standing is seen in the fact that nowhere in the New Testament are women called to submit to men. In other words, just because I'm a man and just because someone may be a woman doesn't give me a role in their lives to be able to tell them what to do. So I can't just go up to Tracy, hey, say, Tracy, go start my car for me so that I can get to Jalapenos before everybody else. She could rightly look me in the eye or climb up on a step and look me in the eye <laughs> and punch me right in the nose. Women are not called to submit to men. This is a function of the home. But it does beg the question, how on earth can an equal be submissive? That doesn't make any sense in our world. How can an equal be submissive? Well, I have an illustration from my fairly recent past. I am one of the elders of Blue Valley Baptist Church. I serve with 13 other men. The 14 of us together collectively have a responsibility from Scripture given to us by God to shepherd and to lead and to provide oversight to the church. Each one of us are equals. In other words, no vote of those 14 outweighs any other vote. All in favor say aye, we're all one vote. We're complete, 
complete equals. And so as an equal, several months ago, I went to our elders and said, you know, we made a decision about practical theology on a particular issue. Practical theology means we just, we made a decision about how we would live out a, a certain teaching of Scripture several, several years ago. And uh, I've just, I've had this wild idea. I think maybe we ought to revisit that. I think maybe we should, you know, get together, study in Scripture, uh, what it actually says, and maybe just kind of revisit that, see if we really, really think that. And they heard what I had to say. I'm an equal with them. They heard what I had to say, and then they went, no, we're not going to do that. We feel good about the decision we made several years ago. Now, did I suddenly become inferior? No, I'm an equal with them. But I recognized in that moment that I was not the elders. I was one of them. And the elders have a role in our church to lead it for its health. And so I had to do, as a church member who happened to be an elder, what all of us are called ultimately to do from Hebrews chapter 13. I had to trust my elders. That's an illustration of how you can be an equal and yet submit to a position that God has established in our church and maybe in the home. Finally, failure to honor wives has spiritual consequences. Uh, there's far too many men who are dead spiritually. And they can't figure out why. You know, I read the Bible, God doesn't talk to me. I come to church. I give. That gives a lot of people say that to me like I don't have any idea what anybody gives. But people say, you know, I give. I just don't get it. Well, if I went to your wife, would she say that you honor her? That you treat her as an equal? That you lead her sacrificially? Would she say that? Or would she say that you're selfish and self-centered? And only in anything because of yourself. Well, that may be a clue as to why you don't get anything out of church, your Bible, or anything else. I am sick and tired of heartbroken women beating a trail to my office because their husbands are spiritual infants. If we believe that God has established a leadership role for men, then men need to be worthy leaders. And they need to love Jesus. And they need to model how to love Jesus. And they need to constantly put other people first and not constantly be building themselves up. So those are the five takeaways. And we're done. Let me just simply close by saying I get that talking about marriage can be painful. Some of you are in very painful marriages. Some of you are single and not by choice. Then for some of you, the subject of marriage is completely irrelevant. You're single by choice. You're flourishing in it. You're, you're being who God called you to be in it. You are certainly not less than. And you think, well, what did this have to do with me? I think we can all agree that, that marriages are important for the health of a church and for the health of a society. And so as we read the instruction that was 
was given to us. We can all pray for the Lord's guidance in all of this. And then one last little addendum. Nowhere in anything that I just read should you take, if you're a woman and in an abusive situation and you're in danger or your family's in danger, nowhere should you read in what I just explained to you that God expects you to remain in an unsafe situation. That's not true. That is not true at all. I remind you of what Paul said to spouses, men and women, in difficult situations. If they end up leaving, God's called you to peace. God has called you to peace. I'm not minimizing marriage at all. I'm, I'm holding up high the value of marriage. I'm just acknowledging that there's a lot going on sometimes in the pew that I don't know about. And I do not want a husband to walk out and saying, he just told you you have to stay and take it. And I do not want a woman to think she has to do that either. That's not what this is about. This is about acknowledging what a marriage can be. And all of us need to pray for our marriages if we're in one and all the marriages around us so that they can experience the best that God has. Let's pray.